The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, there's no such thing as a multi-core flash drive. Now that we got that settled, it's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 269 with guest Larry O'Brien, recorded live Tuesday, August 28, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by... Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says the U.S. military has always been multi-core... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Donnie Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here, and you're here, and that's good. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. We've said it. I've said this damn thing 269 times now. Yes, it's true, and it's still good. It's still good. And thanks for listening. If I haven't told you that lately, I love you, man, or lady. I love you. You know, not in that way, but. You know. You know what I'm saying. Okay. Got to be gender neutral here. <laughs> so, <laughs> Have you got a class for us this week? Yes, I do. Let's kick into Better Know Framework. <laughs> and your Better Know Framework framework class today is uh, System.Environment. Oh. Yep. And this is something that um, you can use in any language, of course. Yeah. And it provides information about and means to manipulate the current environment and platform. What I noticed about this in the documentation is that it's sealed. Really? It can't That's be inherited. Why and I would wonder, they do that? I just wonder why anybody seals anything, you know? Especially at the system level. I mean, that's a pretty basic class. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense that you're going to inherit it for anything, but, you know, you never know. Who knows? That's like saying... You know, since I can't think of it, therefore, it's not possible. But anyway, let me tell you about environment. So this is uh, something that you might have used. If you're a VB programmer anyway, you might have used like, uh, you know, my.computer. Uh, whatever it is, uh, 
you know, current director, what is it, special directories, things like that, where you can find the current directory and you can find the Windows directory and system directory. You can do all that as well, but you can also find the username. You can find the uh, stuff like the working set, which gets the amount of physical memory mapped to the process context. That's kind of neat if yeah. you want to take a look at your, your system environment, not just like your, your directories and your command line, your machine name and all that stuff, the OS version. That's very, uh, very, very helpful, the OS version. I'll tell you why it's helpful. I, I came across this uh, a couple of times with Windows XP64. Uh, Windows XP64 puts programs, 32-bit programs, in programs, uh, program files, parentheses, x86, parentheses. Right. And it puts uh, other ones in program files. So you got to know which directory that you're you're putting stuff into. And if you just say give me the program files directory, and you don't, and you're not using a, you're not specifically compiling to 64-bit, you know now you've got a problem. So you need to check that OS version and see if it's uh, 64-bit OS. Processor count gets the number of processors on the current machine. That's something that we've been talking a lot about lately. That uh, something you might want to want to know. And uh, of course, all other kinds of things. The the environment class, system dot environment, coming to a desktop near you. So, Richard, you got an email for us. Yep, got a quick one for you. Actually, this is really aimed at DNR TV, but oh, cool. you know, I think DNR TV can use the love because you've been doing some great things over there. We lately. certainly have. Yeah, uh, this is from Michael Miller. Not Mark Miller, yeah. Michael Miller. Okay. Thought hey, you guys, there. I just wanted to say that I was very impressed with the DNR TV episode on Code Breeze. Yeah. Normally, I'm a C++ programmer, so naturally, I usually hate having tools that do the work for me. I would rather get my hands dirty and do everything myself, mostly because, as Carl said in the show, a lot of these high-level tools are so high-level that you run into brick walls. Bonk. <laughs> now, even though I really like to write code, the design concepts that were demonstrated in CodeBreeze were nothing short of ingenious. Brilliant. The ability to write a user control to generate the connection string to the database and have the program use that control in the setup wizard made my jaw drop. Yeah, Miguel's middle name is Extensibility. He should be called Miguel Extensibility Castro. That explains why he's so tall. <laughs> anyway, please feel free to pass this on to Miguel Castro. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, I mean, I really wanted to point out, you, we're not just doing what we do on DNR on DNR TV. You're coming up with some really unique shows over there. Absolutely. And if you haven't checked it out, DNRTV.com. Yep. Uh, we've recently did a couple of things on uh, Link to XML with XML literals and VB, and that was just mind blowing. Don XML doing a great job. Right. All, of course, all the Venkat Subramaniam .NET gotchas and things. Well. You can go and look at the list, too, dnrtv.com. Hey, if you're looking for a change of pace in your job and you want to spend a year in Manhattan working for some really interesting people and living rent-free in the city on top of a New York City salary, uh, you might want to check out Infusion's offer for the New York City tour, and that's uh, at uh, shrinkster.com slash kh6. They're also hiring in their Boston office and in their London office. And they're friends of ours. We're not recruiters, but uh, they're friends of ours. We're helping them out, and uh, we want to see them. We want to see them uh, flourish. And Richard, we're uh, we should just uh, say a few words about where we're going to be here uh, this fall. We got a busy fall. We sure do. I guess it starts off uh, in Amsterdam, right? Uh, the week of September seventeenth for the SDC conference. Yeah. And then uh, after that, we're going to Bulgaria, right? October first and second, Sofia, Bulgaria. 
DevReach, our second year there. Uh, Telerik taking the taking the wheel this time. I think they're they're putting a lot more effort into it this year. Right, and you'll see a lot of .NET Rocks guests in the lineup for DevReach. Yeah, it's a very uh, Western sort of uh, conference. Yeah, you bet. Tim Huckabee, Steve Forte, it's a great list. It's funny, you got to go all the way to Eastern Europe to get the Western speakers, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, then we're going, we're going to do Dev Connections, which, by the way, is a launch event, and you can get a free uh, version of Visual Studio 2008 Right, that is it event? the first time that'll be available at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. That's right. They'll be giving that out. I believe they'll be giving that out. And yes. uh, devconnections.com. Uh, and then you're going to uh, TechEd Europe. That's right. So the week after Dev Connections in Las Vegas, then I fly straight away to Barcelona with Greg Hughes, and we're spending the week at the IT Forum for TechEd Europe. And you guys are doing the whole... Uh, Speaker Idol thing, but for the IT side, right? That's right. Speaker Idol, we're putting together some panels. We're doing a whole host of, well, all our usual stuff for being at a conference. It's just going to be for Run As Radio yeah. instead of for .NET Rock. That's great. And speaking of Barcelona, if you recall, last year we, we had a sweepstakes where we gave away a ticket to Tech Ed Europe. And uh, it was successful, but we didn't get the turnout that we thought we were going to get, and partly because... We think that it's just too difficult for people to, even if it's free, to be able to get away for a week and go to Spain. Especially on that short of notice. Yeah. So when the Microsoft folks approached us and said, let's do it again, yeah, I suggested that maybe we should give away a different prize. Right. And what do, what do geeks want more than big monitors? No, big monitors are key. So that's what I said was, no, we could give away some big monitors. And they said, sure. Yeah. So we got two 24-inch 19 by 20 LCD panels. So here's how it works, folks. You go to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona, and you register with your email address and pick a password. And then we're going to ask you one time to, to share with us some information about you and your, you know, your organization and your role at work and all that demographic stuff that people like. Because, you know, that's, that's what we give Microsoft for the, uh, for the privilege of giving away monitors. And uh, then you come back and listen to the show every week and answer a question about the show. Just something, you know, if you were listening to the show, you'll have no problem answering this question. So every week, every Tuesday, we're going to pick a winner uh, for that question. And that winner is going to get a Tom Bin brain bag. Woohoo! Yeah. Love the brain bag. I still have my brain bag. Those things are indestructible. Yeah, I still carry mine. They're made from, like, the toughest stuff. It's t tougher than Kevlar, isn't it? Yeah, well, it won't stop bullets, but it'll put up with a lot of abuse. Sure Those will. guys at Tom Bin, they know how to build bags, they right? They do. They're really, they were mountaineering equipment guys who've moved into this space of building bags that carry laptops. My yeah. brain bag, I can actually put two computers in it. Yeah, me too. I put my, uh, my big XPS and my uh, tablet PC in it, no problem. So anyway, the weekly winners will all go into a pool, and from those winners, we will pick two lucky winners to get the 24-inch monitors that we're giving away, and uh, that'll be on October 30th, Tuesday, October 30th. Just before 30th. Halloween and just before TechEd Europe. All right, so good and luck, then, everybody. The URL again, .netrocks.com slash Barcelona. And then one last conference to mention, and that's Dev Teach in Vancouver, my town. Right. November, the week of November 26th. Yep. 
So we're going to be at all of these. We hope you could get at least to one of them. And if you can't, don't worry about it because we'll uh, we'll record shows from the conferences and and we'll uh, post them here. So on to Larry O'Brien. Uh, Larry, for those old enough to believe that 8 bits is a perfectly reasonable size for an integer, <laughs> may be remembered as the editor of Computer Language and AI Expert magazines. And later, he was the founding editor of Software Development and Game Developer magazines. During the dot-com years, O'Brien served in a variety of technical and executive positions at a series of startups whose only commonality was that they all became stop-downs. Nice. Start-downs or stop-downs? Oh, no. If it was a startup, it's got to be a stop-down. Stop-down. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, today, O'Brien is known for his writing, which appears in a number of online and print outlets, including DevX, the developer sites of both Intel and AMD, and his Windows and .NET Watch column for SD Times. His blog posts, Top 10 Things I've Learned About Computers, and any episode of 24, was selected for inclusion in the University of Michigan's Best of Technology Writing 2007. In addition to writing, O'Brien works as an analyst of the software development industry and as a consultant specializing in architecting and implementing high-performance service-oriented systems. You can read the rest of his uh, bio online. Welcome, Larry. Aloha, guys. Another Hawaii guy. That's right. Yeah, it's the Pacific version of .NET Rocks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> as long as we're not eating poi, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, but, you know, I'm filled with... Uh, a little trepidation, because since you guys contacted me to be on this show, we've had a meteor shower, a lava flow, a hurricane, and a tsunami. It's good to know you're not superstitious. You know, computer yeah. scientists, you know, all business kind of. Wow. But it is kind of grim around Hawaii lately. You guys have really taken a beating. You know, actually, all of these things turned out to be, uh, I won't say false alarms, but we turned out to be pretty lucky with all of them. Not well, as bad um, as they could have been. Well, a meteor exactly. shower isn't an imminent threat, is it? It's just nice lights in the sky. You know, the amazing thing is they actually have credible uh, witnesses that may have seen a meteor hit the ocean. Wow. Now that's cool. Yeah, there's about three people who witnessed this thing from different angles. So, And a bunch of sharks that said, WTF is that? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now I got one quote to lead this whole thing off with that I'm just wrestling with, and that quote is, "Programming is fun." Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have this this radical theory, which is uh, that the fact that programming is fun is actually important to the profession of software development. And you know, I know Carl. The other the other week, you quoted Billy Hollis saying that. Right. You know, your job is not to write code, it's to deliver value, yeah. and that's absolutely true. But sometimes I think the fact that programming is fun really relates to how the software development industry evolves, because it's very difficult to explain the success of certain things in the software development industry, like the C programming language for systems for application programming, without talking about the psychology of computer programming. And the thing that's really interesting to me about computer programming and fun is that it's not at all obvious that it should be fun. Yeah, certainly isn't. And, you know, from like what Billy says, it seems that there are so many forces trying to take away your code, right? 
you know, the, all these high-level tools. We were just talking with Vishwas Lele about SharePoint, and we got into this great discussion about uh, do you find any pushback from developers who find that they're writing less code and doing more clicking, you know, and which is a perfectly reasonable question, I think. But we came to the conclusion that y- you're still writing code, but you're not writing the code you don't like to write. Like writing the code that you like to write is fun, I think. Fixing bugs in plumbing isn't fun to me. F- and adding little petty features to uh, to things that you couldn't be bothered with isn't fun to me either. Yeah, you couldn't be more right. And, you know, every couple of years a tool vendor comes out and they say, you know, we'll do away with programming. Right, no right. more and code. Think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't matter if the code is, is lines and bubbles on a, on a chart or if it's, if it's text. Um, you know... Programmers like code and and that psychology, that aesthetic of manipulating the machine and making it do things that it couldn't do before and exploiting the hardware, uh, exploiting the hardware fully. I think that those things are really important to why people become programmers. I got to tell you that since I stopped programming for a living, I enjoy it much more. (laughs) Does that make sense? (laughs) Oh, I think it makes total sense. I always say that I would... I would be a computer programmer if it were illegal to be a computer programmer. <laughs> or harmful. <laughs> well, I think it probably is harmful, but, you know, I just lock myself in a room. Oh, wait, I already lock myself in a <laughs> But, you know, the interesting point is we happen to be in an industry that has a lot of opportunity, a ton of work, and so forth. And, and I've had exactly this conversation where I've said, you know, if those things weren't true... A bunch of us would still be programmers. It's really fun. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, a bunch of us would still be programmers. And a part of me wonders if the software that would emerge from that scene, from such a scene wouldn't be wonderful in ways that, it, that a lot of software hasn't been for a couple decades. There used to be that aesthetic in, in computer programming. You know, mm. and if, you're, if you're old enough, you know, you, you can kind of remember when... These things did just sort of emerge from the, uh, well, from the pages of magazines in which you'd have to copy them line oh, by line. Oh, man, you're taking me back. <laughs> I used to do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I bet you wrote some columns like that, too, where there was no such thing as, you know, even before BBSs, I was reading code out of a magazine. I think it was 80 Micro Magazine for my TRS-80. Nice. And then, you know, what's funny is that it blows up, right? The code doesn't work. And you're like, oh, no, I just spent like nine hours. Now I got to debug this thing. Absolutely. But still, there was also that great advantage of in those days when your computer would crash every time you peeked or poked something in the wrong place. Or, <laughs> right. you know, when you learned C and, you know, what you discovered from C is that it, you can crash your computer doing anything at all. Right. Yeah. Everything. It, you became so bold. About yeah. computers, they are so not intimidating anymore, and and I sometimes think that you know kids today with their runtime platforms <laughs> and their managed code. <laughs> Back in my day, oh man, I was talking to somebody about Periscope the other day. Do you remember that thing? Absolutely, it was an ISA board that you plugged into your machine, and when you and when you bombed Windows three because you oh, were writing yeah. C code in it. It would capture a snapshot of memory and load it in the board, and then when you came back up, you could go and look at it. 
and it had that little plunger button. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and yeah, just the whole the whole idea of a core dump as. Oh boy! Here's a core dump. Let me look at the entire snapshot. I'm of so memory. excited! Yeah, <laughs> pour some coffee. <laughs> We're gonna have some fun now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, I agree. Programming should be fun, and if if you know you know everybody's got to do their job and they got to do it more efficiently and everything. But you know you got to find ways to to do projects that are fun, even if it's at home. You know, even if it's after hours. Like getting a bunch of developers to stay after to to write a, oh, I don't know, an Xbox game or something. Oh, amen. XNA is a blast. Yeah. Yeah. I, wish it, I don't think XNA supports VB yet. Or, yeah, or it's C-sharp only, do? right? Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. But, yeah, absolutely. Game programming is tremendous fun as a hobby and the worst niche in the software development market. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, not not something you do for money. You know, <laughs> not something you do if you have any value of uh, your time outside of outside of work. Right. So are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates. Rad controls for ASP.NET, Rad controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool and a brand new suite codenamed Rad controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, RAD controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting, the product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls Easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. Hey, we want to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, bit about concurrency, and I just got to tell you that the the coolest thing that I've heard about in multi-threading was polyphonic C-sharp. Yep. Where the idea is that you don't have to write locking code anymore. You just sort of say, I want this code here to be concurrent, and it's going to be re-entrant or you know, called by many threads and protect it for me. And then, yeah, uh, I think that... Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, that's it. Uh, I mean, did I describe it right? Yeah, well, there are a couple things about polyphonic C-sharp where I agree. I thought that that was a great research project. I'm not really sure how much of that they've decided to incorporate into yeah. the future. That's my biggest wish is that I want something now like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you can download polyphonic C-sharp from uh, MSR still, can't you? Yeah, I suppose you can, yeah. Yeah, it's still out there. It's not going anywhere. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the downside is that it may that that its influence on, on the future isn't clear. But there are a few other models that move away from locks and threads 
and uh, we can talk about those. And as a matter of fact, we probably should talk about those because yeah. the thread and uh, the thread and lock model, which we have in the CLR today, is absolutely not going to bring us forward into the future. Oh come on! You're no fun. I really want to see 25 threads per <laughs> processor with 64 processors. That's going to be fun. Oh man! You know that that just ma- burns a hole in my stomach. You know, I know you're right. I know you're right because I've tried it. We, you know, people who we respect in this industry, like Kate Gregory, who just you know is a machine when it comes to multi-threaded program. Even she says, you know, I still don't get it. <laughs> it's like, sometimes I look at my code, I'm like, what? What is this? Oh, absolutely. But even, even if you get it, and even if you think it's fun, there's a thing about that, the, that thread and process model that we have in the CLR today, which I would argue makes it fundamentally broken for business programming. So check out this scenario. You have a library, and it has some publicly available method by which it acquires a lock, right? Yeah. And holds that lock uh, and returns to you, and you go about and do your other things. You, if you have another method that calls that library, on which that library performs a callback, and by a callback, I mean all sorts of important things. I'm talking about virtual method calls in the world of object orientation. I'm talking about delegates and events central to graphics programming. And I'm talking about Lambda expressions, which are coming out in C-sharp 3.0 and are very important for Link. Mm -hmm. You can never safely have a library that simultaneously has a publicly triggerable lock that executes a callback to client code because it's perfectly legal for the client code to start up a new thread, and yeah. within that new thread, call that method that attempts to get the lock, which is already held by the previous thread. So and the end result of that is deadlock. So the bottom line is, if you have locked code, you can't you can't call back. You can't make a call out to the 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 user for them to do whatever they want in code, or else you're asking for trouble. Not just asking for trouble. I mean, you, you basically, you guarantee that a deadlock can happen. And, you know, working around that is sort of one thing if you're a systems-level programmer and everyone working on your system is working within, you know, the constraints and the design review and so forth. But at the level of applications where nowadays people are grabbing components and putting them together and there's all sorts of levels of sophistication to the developers working on the system, you just can't ship a library that has those types of vulnerabilities in it because you will get nuked. So the lock and thread model, um, which is what we currently have, fundamentally broken, will not work for the future. Hmm. So what's the answer, man? <laughs> well, the interesting thing is I don't think anyone knows what the answer is. Um, there are a couple different models. Um, that are really interesting, and we can talk about those in the future, or, or we can talk about those. But, you know, one question that a lot of people have when it comes to multiple cores, and after we get through the multiple core phase of hardware, which is where we are now with maybe two cores and maybe four cores, we're going to get into this world of many cores, 
when we have 8, 16, 32, 64 cores inside a machine. And a lot of people are think that they can stick their head in the ground and that the operating system or the library is going to take care of exploiting all of those cores. And I don't think that's true. Yeah, and before we even get into the solutions, I, I just want to reiterate how common it is for developers to do what you just said. They they get, uh, you, you know, you're working with some sort of API or whatever that you're pulling for data, and that data comes out, you want to raise an event, right? You want to give the the programmer access to that uh access to to that time when that happens now if you raise the event on the thread you're on you still you're saying you still have the possibility that you're going to deadlock because in that event handler code they could start a new thread and call your code yeah that, exactly so basically all the yeah this code this kind of code is done all the time though yeah it absolutely is and to some extent people have been lucky um, and to another extent, people who have regularly worked with multitasking code know that deadlocks and live locks and priority inversion are, in fact, a well and truly a part of what you have to deal with if you're dealing with that threading model. Yeah, I mean, that's just a very common uh, flagrant uh, problem is what you're saying. I mean, it's very common to do what you're saying. It, it's absolutely common. And if you think about the most logical response that you would have if you knew that you were running on a machine with, let's say, four cores, it's going to become even more likely that your inclination when faced with a time-consuming uh, calculation is going to be to fire up a thread. Well, that's what the cores are for, right? Right. You're right. So, so this problem is only going to become more common as developers start thinking, okay, well, now I've got four cores. Now I have eight cores. Well, is it enough just to tell the developers, look, you know, you're getting this event handler code in there. Don't call this code. <laughs> Can you say don't and is that good enough or does that have to, uh, you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, but in, in my experience, you're absolutely right. It's a 100% effective thing to tell developers, follow these coding guidelines because not following them could lead to unforeseen consequences. Right. That works every time. <laughs> <laughs> huh. I yeah. think I'm sarcastic in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. So we have been lucky, basically, is what you're saying. Well, I, I don't know that we've been lucky. Or we've just had gear that's been very tolerant of it. And we've also dealt with the consequences of the errors. I think the big thing that's going to happen with quad-core machines going onto the desktop is people are going to learn that they got two cores there they don't use. Yeah, yeah what he's saying is that people, if they do use them, they increase the chance that there's going to be locks, especially if you're, like, handling, uh, you know, callbacks. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of one, you know, that might be a very reasonable position to take, that in the future developers are going to sort of say to themselves, well, I'll just let my application run at the full speed of a single core, and I'm just not going to think about the, you know, two and four cores. And I think that that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense for the era that we're currently entering into, which is the two and four core era. Eight core, yeah. An eight core. But when you get beyond, a lot of people call this era that we're in uh, the multi-core era. 
but the thing is, is it's just a transitional time. Within five or six years, or you know, maybe six or seven years, we're all going to be dealing with 16 and 32 and 64. And it seems to me that when you get to, say, like, say 32 cores in your machine, and you have any sort of code that takes a while to, to do something, you're going to say, you know what, I've, I've got to distribute this. Because yeah. the fact is, is that a single core is, is, we know with near metaphysical certainty <laughs> that the single core machines are only going to get very incrementally faster. Yeah. In other words, the reality yeah. is individual cores have backed off in performance in the past couple of years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, to me, one of the most boggling things to think about when I think about hardware is that a gigahertz, a billionth of a second, the light travels 13 inches or so in a billionth of a second. Right. Wow. And you think about how big those CPUs are, and apparently it's gotten to the point where CPU designers actually have to take the speed of light into consideration when thinking about the, the path through the CPUs. That's how fast these things have gotten. Yeah, and they're, once you get approach the speed of light, well, you're, you're pretty much done right there. Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a big old stop sign there. Yeah. And you know, and, and yet still, our computers can't uh, can't do any kind of decent machine vision. Uh, voice recognition isn't where it should be. Um, you guys work with sound a lot. I mean, I imagine right. that when you're, you're dealing with these multimedia files, you probably have to sit around a long time for it to to do certain types of processing. Well, you know, the our biggest bottleneck is the disk because there's so much data on the disk that when we when we go from a single machine that has a single 7200 rpm uh sata drive to something that has a raid array that's uh you know a 0 plus 1 kind of array where you got striping um and all the caching that happens on the controller yeah the difference is phenomenal but um with the same speed of processor the bottleneck is definitely the the uh disk. Yeah, you know, you, you've touched upon something that is incredibly important for understanding concurrency and concurrency models. And that's what I, what I think of as sort of an Incan step pyramid <laughs> when it comes to performance on these CPU cores. The cores themselves run at these insane speeds, you know, executing uh, multiple operations in a billionth of a second. And the first step up at the top of the step pyramids is L1 cache and L2 cache, and they can access data and instructions within that uh, pr pretty darn fast. But then they take a big step down when it comes to main memory, and then you take another step down when you're talking about crossing a process boundary. Then you take an enormous step when you hit the disk, and you take another enormous step, of course, if you're actually accessing the Internet. So... When you're dealing with concurrency and thinking about distributing your calculations between cores, what you have to think about, or what I think about, is things are so efficient up at the top of that pyramid, but to move the data and the calculation over to the next pyramid over in my 
tekal inside my machine. Mm. You have to move all of this stuff kind of down the step ziggurat, down, down the step pyramid, move it over to the other core, move it up to the top, do your calculation, and then move it down and move it back and synchronize things. And what this turns out to, to the influence of this turns out to be that it's often the case that you can perform hundreds of loops more efficiently on a single core than distributing your loops onto multiple cores. Because that's kind of the most obvious change that you could maybe make to language semantics to, to support concurrency is, okay, well, when I do a for each, maybe all for eaches should simply be parallel and distribute them across the, the processor cores. Well, it turns out that that's that, that doesn't work unless the amount of data you're working with is very, very significant. Right. The overhead for switching threads is significant. Is very significant. Exactly. It, that's exactly Isn't it. Isn't there a magic number um, of the number of threads that a process can have before, before you... Re- I, th- I heard a, hardcore, a hard number. It might even be 20. Do you, have if you heard there about- is a magic number, I'm sure Joe Duffy... We'll contact you with that. <laughs> the, the number's 25. 25. And it's, <laughs> but it is an arbitrary number. I mean, they, but every time we say it's arbitrary, then you start playing with adjusting it, and everything gets worse. So right. while it may be arbitrary, it seems to be working okay. But that's that's decided by Windows. Right. There's, there's nothing hardwired into the processor that says we can't do more. Yeah. And it just turns out that even if you're doing very efficient processing, just the overhead for handling 25 threads turns out to be. So I guess that's why the thread pool in uh, in .NET only allows 25. But um, yeah, yeah. So so let's talk now about some technologies that have come out. I mean, we mentioned uh, Polyphonic C Sharp. That we did a great show on that, uh, listeners. If you haven't heard that, it's it was really mind blowing. Um, but, but what do you, what, let me ask you this as a developer, what's, what would be like the ultimate programming interface for a thread? No interface at all. Just have it work. Is that even possible? I think it's, I think that's not possible. I, I you know, and that, and that, that, that's controversial. Maybe it is, but I think it isn't precisely because of that problem that we were just talking about, about the moving the data down and moving it over. And the overhead of that is it is that that becomes such a block that I think that that means that you can never have purely automatic uh, concurrency without hints in the language. I think that our languages have to have some level of hinting uh, within them in order to efficiently distribute threads. Maybe attributes, uh, just say, you know, this is has a sensitivity or something like that, or uh, I, I really don't know the answer. I'm- well, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump ahead and, and, and tell you what I think uh, the real thought leader in terms of uh, what might be a beautiful way of looking at the code so that it, it, it seems to me that this could work. And that's Herb Sutter at Microsoft is a real thought leader when it comes to the future of concurrency models. And a few years ago, he started talking about a, a project or I don't know if it's if it was actually even an official project or if it was just something he was noodling around with. It's called Concur. He gave a lecture on it at the PDC, uh, the last PDC, in 05. And if you were to either, uh, that, that lecture is still available online, and 
Um, then he has some PowerPoint slides associated with it. And the model in Concur, uh, at the risk of getting this all wrong, but the model in Concur is, I think, very clever. Instead of trying to second-guess the creation of threads, what you do is you say, well, I want this value, you know, this, this value being returned from a function, but I can either have the value or I can have what uh, Sutter calls a future. And a future is basically an IOU. A future says, okay, so you, you have this reference to a future, and when you need it, when you say, okay, I want to cash in this IOU, at that point, the system will block and guarantee that the value is, becomes concrete. And so just by sort of flipping things around from, okay, let's create processes and sort of throw the, and try to second guess how many cores I have and, you know, and, and, and those sorts of approaches. This approach says, okay, by simply having a whole bunch of IOUs floating around, then it becomes possible for the compiler and the runtime to do a lot of really clever reasoning about, oh, hey, look, you know, here's this IOU, but I know that this IOU won't be required for, you know, several hundred milliseconds. And so, therefore, I have enough information to distribute that to another core. And on the other hand, you might have this IOU, and the processor or the compiler, either the runtime or the compiler, might be able to say, oh, you know what, he actually requires that value to become concrete, just a couple, you know, just, just two lines of source code down. So therefore, I have enough information to know that I don't have to distribute that calculate. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. That's what it's all about, right? Judging whether or not uh, something is going to happen fast enough so that that uh, two threads will execute the same code at the same time, which, by the way, is a very slight chance. But given enough time and enough cycles, you know, maybe one in a million, uh, that will happen. But, I mean, isn't that really what it's all about, is trying to figure out the po- the probability of of these two of of two threads crash uh, colliding into each other like this. Yep, you're right and in in by talking about that you've actually touched upon another really hot memory model that a lot of or a threading model that a lot of people are talking about right now. And that's called software transactional memory. And this will really appeal to Carl and the database programming community. Well, wait a minute. I know what this is. This is what I was thought I was talking about when I was talking about polyphonic C# sharp. All right, go ahead. Okay, software transactional memory. It's essentially optimistic locking for memory. You yeah. say, you, you, you wrap a method call or a block in what's essentially a transaction. You say atomic, start block, and then you finish the block. And it runs at full speed, and then you have a follow-along processor that goes through and it looks for that one in a thousand, one in a million, memory collision. And if a memory collision has occurred, it retries it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not at all a bad model. It's, um, 
It's a great <laughs> model. It doesn't it like copy the memory into another place and and execute it. It does some really cool stuff behind the scenes. Um, yeah, that, that's right. It it has a significant runtime uh, component, which makes STM probably somewhat inefficient in the world of two and four cores. But as soon as you get into many cores, maybe eight cores or more, then you start thinking about, well, that's something that could sort of be running on its own, on its own processor and it could be yeah. very efficient, just like the garbage collector is very efficient now. Right. Um, and there are actually a couple implementations of software transactional memory for C-sharp uh, that are already available. There's one from Microsoft Research, and I think I sent you guys the link to that. Yep, and Microsoft Research STM for C-sharp is at shrinkster.com slash SFP. And then there's another one by a guy named Ralph, and I think his last name is pronounced Sudelbuker. Okay, and that's at shrinkster.com slash SFQ. And software transactional memory is absolutely uh, something that a lot of people are looking at right now. My gut take on STM is that it's not a complete solution at the application level because I have this fear that people are going to be throwing in these, you know, memory transactions all up and down their code and the idea of a retry way, way out at your, you know, at your main or at your, you know, web page request strikes me as something that's, that's really going to take a lot of people aback. And it, just because it's a retry doesn't mean it's going to succeed either. How many retries are you going to allow? And after you've la- l- passed that limit, then what? Well, I, I got to imagine, Richard, that the possibility of, of that I mean, first of all, the possibility of thread collisions and race conditions, what we call them, is pretty remote already. Um, so I gotta, I gotta think that, you know, it, it can't. But there's an equation happen. here, right? I mean, they're relatively remote right now with one, two, four cores, right? But when I got 64 cores and everybody's doing all these things at the same time, I think logarithmically, exponentially, we're increasing the likelihood of this happening. I think it's going to happen a lot more often. And so the possibility of retries is higher, and the possibility of those retries failing is higher. Ultimately, you know, the same thing happened with database locking, where, yeah, locks are generally fine, and sometimes they collide, and then you retry, and most of the time that's fine, and then once in a while, it's not fine. Mm. And then what? Well, i got to imagine the alternative is, you know, the, what we're doing now, which is not, as, as, as Larry's saying, it just isn't going to work. It's not going to scale. Yeah, I, I think that STM has a good chance of replacing, at least at the systems level. Like I said, I, I sometimes make a distinction between sort of application levels and the sorts of things that might be exposed to the, the broadest world of software developers and, you know, the systems level guys, the guys who are pretty comfortable with that idea of, you know, okay, let's, let's be down here and let's be taking a look at what's happening at the level of nanoseconds. And I do suspect that STM has a very, very bright future at the systems level. Personally, I suspect that at the business level, we're going to have to have something a little more, uh, a little more abstract. But I might be wrong. Might be wrong. And ultimately, from a developer's point of view, all we're doing is declaring the boundaries of a given transaction saying, here's a chunk of memory that until this code finishes executing, I don't want you to mess with these variables. I own them. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. But so how you implement after that is secondary. Once I've created those definitions so I know where my boundaries are, there's a bunch of different concurrency implementations that could work with that. Yep, very true. And then the other the other point to make, though, would be, well, how good are developers at figuring out efficient transactions and how much, how often do they, you know, err by... Lot, you know, air by putting it inside a transaction. Now, so I once so ran into a problem. project where guys, this, a guy had decided that a transaction was something you started at nine in the morning and ended at five <laughs> o'clock, <laughs> and was very unhappy with Microsoft's performance. Oh. <laughs> so, to your point, sir, <laughs> yeah, actually getting those boundaries right is the tricky bit. But the point I was trying to make here is you don't – we're back to this thing that that Carl said where I don't actually have to know how concurrency works. If I can declare coherent boundaries, you'll figure it out for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that that starts to talk about a couple other high-level abstraction models, which might be possible. One is what's called message passing. And in this, this is what's featured in the hot new programming programming language Erlang. Um, oh, I don't yes. Know if you, yeah, Erlang. exactly. All, all of the Geepsters have uh, moved on from Ruby to, to Erlang. Anyone uh, Erl- get into- Erlang is Ericsson language, right? That's Well, uh, they, they claim that's, that, that's just a happy coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> but it did, it did come out of... Um, yeah, strangely enough, it's a language from Ericsson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the I mean the origins of this is all about this sort of real time system for telephones. Yeah, and, and not just real time, but up forever. So Erlang actually has some really interesting things in it about hot patching running code, um, which I think are, is is super interesting. It doesn't really directly touch upon its concurrency mechanism, um, but the concurrency of compiling. Yeah, it, it, it's a really, really interesting language. It has some similarities to Prolog, which is a, my first great programming language love. Um, and it has uh, this process model, which distributes it across nodes efficiently. It has these lightweight processes. Um, and now it doesn't get around the fundamental reality of those Incan step pyramids, but it, it's a good, good, high-level programming there's, model. There's no shared memory, right? Oh, that's huge. That's Between a processes? huge thing, is that really to make concurrency work at the language level, the number one thing that you want to get rid of is shared mutable state. Yep. And Erlang is single assignment to variables, and then, for instance, F-sharp and other functional languages, they only allow state to be passed via uh, parameters. I guess, actually, F-sharp isn't pure functional, but pure functional languages only allow state to be passed via parameters. Right. And no pointers it, kind of thing. Oh, definitely no pointers. Pointers always make analysis very, very difficult. Yeah. But even also no changing of a variable once it's been assigned. Yep. Which is very counterintuitive. It is because, you, the- yeah, well, when you think about writing recursive uh, routines, typically I, I got a list that I want to append or something like that. That's a variable that needs to change. And those, that's the whole reason why I, you know, I do that is I want those variables to change. But 
but the functional aspect of it is just returning values that return values that return functions that return functions that return values, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to wrap my mind around. I still don't get it. But did we, and we yeah. talked about this with F sharp too. Loops become recursive calls. Because right. you get away from, I don't ever want to modify data. I only want to create new data. So I'm going to take the data from the previous call, recurse into the call with that data, and add more data to it, and go again. So how do you get around uh, keeping those memory constructs from you know being passed from, uh, from entity to entity if we're going across threads? Well, they, they live on the stack. They live on the stack, and every thread has its own stack. All right, so we're talking about basic pieces of data that get modified and then returned. So the current, whatever's currently executing it is the thread that, that owns the current version of it. That's right. And there can be multiple threads executing that data, but each of those threads will have its own stack, so each will have its own coherent history. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it... No, no, I'm just, you know, that's my first reaction is, my God, my head's exploding. Well, and yeah. hey, you know, there, there was a reason we created pointers. We didn't create them just to torture people, <laughs> although the big reason we created pointers is they're fast. It's so much faster to point you to where that thing is rather than to create another one. Yeah. Boy, is that right. And a lot of, a lot of the, the troubles with functional languages is when people start thinking about, okay, how am I going to deal with uh, some multimedia data? You know, I, oh, I'm not yeah. going to pass in every single bit in my image. Yeah, I'm not going to copy my image every time I make a function call. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to be clear, the functional guys have a way around these things. They, they can use pointers internally in their, in their representation. It's just that those pointers aren't exposed to the developer. The right. functional languages are, can actually be very, very performant. As a matter of fact, because they don't expose pointers to the developer, you can make a lot of arguments that they could actually ultimately become significantly more performant than languages which do have pointers because the compiler can be much, much smarter about code motion and so forth. But hmm. whether the mainstream will ever warm up to functional approaches, I don't know. I think unit testing contributes. I think unit testing is a kind of functional approach because if you think about it, you're always, every time you create a unit test, you set up state inside your unit test and then you fire off a specific function and you get back a specific function that you test. So, so in that sense, that's a very functional approach. That's a very functional mindset. So I do see sort of some trends in, in the world of general software development are actually sort of coming back around to, to functional programming. And certainly when you start talking about Lambda expressions. Then obviously this has made it into the next version of the .NET framework in the form of Link and, and C Sharp 3.0. I mean, so much of these extensions are coming right from the functional programming world. Yep. Yep. So I think that people uh, have some basis for thinking that functional programming may actually enjoy uh, a, a resurgence or, to be fair, probably its original surgence. Functional programming has been around for a long time and has always been very... Academics and mathematicians have always loved functional programming. It's never actually entered the mainstream, but I think that you can, you can see, you can make an argument that, okay, maybe functional programming is the way that we're going to go. Now, you know, one thing I'm curious about is that 
both polyphonic C sharp and STM for C sharp, they're only for C sharp. Don't, isn't the, doesn't the threading model live at the framework level? And why would the language matter? Why isn't it for VB? I mean, why, why does the language matter? Well, I'm not the, the guy to answer why it isn't in VB. Um, however, I will say that you can't, you cannot solve the threading problem solely at the platform level. Okay. Um, and that's because we make, you can't simply put it into function calls because, again, it comes down to we make so many function calls that we need something more coarse-grained to hint at uh, where sort of acceptable, where those either trans- transactions occur or when we can delay our access to uh, a variable. Those sorts of things... I don't think you can move those solely into the library. I think that we're going to have to have the language incorporate concurrency. And I think for the mainframe, uh, again, the mainstream languages, the C-sharps and VBs and even C++, never mind C++, um, they they haven't got there yet. You know, they, they, they haven't, they've been addressing things which they legitimately think are problems today. You know, Anders uh, saw the kind of access to the object graph uh, very correctly as, as a great step forward. I think that Link is a fantastic innovation, you know, and it's spread throughout, you know, the, the other languages. Uh, VB, you know, with XML literals and everything, I think that that's yeah. very legitimately. I just saw that for the first time a few weeks ago, and um, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, that this version of languages coming out are really fantastic. I, I, I think that you're really seeing some nice, nice innovation and some things that might be a little difficult for people to learn at first and to get used to the syntax. But I think that the types of manipulation they facilitate, I, 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 I really see a bright future for, for both those languages just based on this, this current version. Well, and it does look like we're being drawn towards this functional world in studio with the languages bit by bit. Uh, obviously, this is a step. i got to imagine that the next version beyond uh, the 2008 edition could just go further. And I have to wonder when STM is going to show up in the framework. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think that I would, well, I'm, I know that Microsoft Research has, uh, you know, they have that STM for C Sharp. I have no doubt that they're looking at that very carefully. Um, I I still, you know, based on based on what we just said, maybe it's not going to be in the framework. Maybe it's a language by language implementation. Well, it, it probably won't be just language by language because all of the models that I've talked about, after once you get away from threads and locking, all of all of those other models that we've talked about, with the exception of the pure functional model, require runtime support. They, they require right. a component that's chugging along and doing a good bit of the work. And you're going to want that to be written in your low-level... Yeah, as close to the metal as possible. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be really important. So there's so going I to be an STM part in the framework, but then I could see VB having declarations for transactional boundaries. But then when I go and I look at a language like F-sharp, and I say, well, the transactional boundary is the function call, so yep. it's inherent. Yeah. But it's actually still calling to STM. They're just two different ways to get to the STM call. Very possibly. And I think that what you're, the world you're describing, where there's some low-level 
super close to the metal component in the framework, maybe even in the OS. Um, Boy, that would be cool. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they're going to have to make some serious changes, not for the next version of Windows. The next version of Windows had better take a big step towards it, though. Yeah. Because by the time you're talking about the mid-teens, you know, 2015, 2017, 10 years from now, if Windows is not does not have some serious infrastructure for distributing its own work and the work of programs running within it, well, that's that's going to be really hard because it's going to be linked. You know, we're at a significant epoch in the development of computers. It's as significant as the integrated circuit or the personal computer or the widespread access to the network. You know, we're, we're going to get a lot of cores inside these machines. Yep. And everything that we run on our computers is going to have to be able to, to work with them. Well, I don't feel any more confident about a, sol- a future solution than I did when we started, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're right. I mean, it, there's one thing you can't deny is that, you know, it's got to change. We can't, you know, the current model doesn't work. It doesn't scale, especially for those, you know, and, and the less we have to do as programmers to worry about it, the better. Yeah. When I can also see, like you say, we're in this special, this remarkable epoch, is you can see that the industry has been groping for an answer. That's why this explosion of languages this is the same explosion we had back at the prologue small talk era, where we were trying to find how are we going to implement object orientation, and we had a bunch of languages that tried, and a few won. And it seems like we're exactly at that same point. We're now trying to figure out how we're going to manage the massive numbers of cores, and we're trying a lot of different ways, and a few of them are going to win. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you completely. I agree with your analogy to the object-oriented era. And what we saw then is that that was a time that ushered in a sea change in what languages we used. So that, to yes. me, is really interesting. Uh, the languages we use today... Um, especially those languages which are actually controlled by individuals as opposed to certain other languages which are, uh, you know, controlled by large groups, committee groups, who, you know, aren't going to be as quick to embrace the kind of radical change that's going to be necessary. Um, You know, I think that there's a good possibility that we really will see a sea change in what languages are used in the mainstream. Um, Perhaps some form of functional Ruby Right. Well, Fruby. How about that? <laughs> I love, you know, I-, I love Ruby so much, and I'm so excited about Iron Ruby that I just had to throw in a couple gratuitous references to it uh, just <laughs> yeah. to acknowledge it. So. It wouldn't be a DNR show without Ruby coming up, actually. <laughs> oh, no. Well, we had John on a little while ago, and I do think we're going to have to have him back now that John he's Lamb. Yes. So tell me about the Jolt Awards, man. Oh, the Jolt Awards. Well, the Jolt Awards are this big uh, boondoggle that we've been putting on for like 18 years. <laughs> because, as, as you know, there's nothing more fun than just getting a whole bunch of books and products and, and messing around with them. So the Jolt Awards go way back to you the You started it, though. You well, started I, it. Well, you know, there's a bunch of guys. There's a... Uh, Alan Zajic, Andrew Binstock, J.D. Hildebrand, and myself, and I think all of us claim that 
we were the ones who came up with the idea of a block of lucite with a can of cola embedded in it. <laughs> was a good idea. As, as the ultimate symbol of programmer productivity. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I, J.D. I, I Hildebrand is a name I haven't heard in a long, long time. That's right. Didn't he do a mag called Boardwatch at one point? Boy, I, 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 I think that one predates my, my knowledge of him. He used to be with uh, Wintech Journal was his, was his big one after. Right, right. Yeah, I he remember. He was at Unix Review for a while and Computer Language before that. But, uh, yeah, he was the... He's he's still around. He's not in the computer industry anymore, but I but I still occasionally swap some emails with him, which is very nice. Oh. Um, so the Jolt Awards have been going on for low these many years, and now they're run by Dr. Dobbs Journal. And uh, nominations for the Jolt Awards are opening up on September 17th. I don't know when this is going to air or go out over the interwebs. Pretty but, soon, uh, actually. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, and the nice thing is that the awards are, we encourage people to nominate the products, open source or commercial, that they think have really had a significant upgrade in the past year and that they think are the best, the best books, the best libraries, the best languages, all of those things. And we get about 30 judges, um, and we just go to town on these on these products and it takes about six months and it's, it's kind of the highlight of my year because it's so enjoyable looking at these great products as they come out. And we don't, you know, there's no way for us to know what all of the best products of the year are. So if people could go to the www.joltawards.com and get involved in the nomination pro- uh, process, we'd certainly appreciate it. Is there it. actually an event that happens? Yeah. The awards are given out every year at the, uh, what do they call it nowadays? I think they call it the SD Expo conference okay. that happens in the spring. Dr. Dobbs gives a, a couple awards. They give um, their they, they give an award to kind of a great programmer. I think they call that the Excellence in Programming Award. Um, that you know, someone like Anders or uh, PJ Plogger or, or, or someone like that. And then they also have the Jolt Awards at the same ceremony. Oh, very good. Yeah, people show up in tuxedos the whole bit. So, do you attend those? I generally try to get to that conference, yeah. Yeah, it's not always possible, but... Right. All right. Well, uh, our guest has been Larry O'Brien. His blog is knowing.net, K-N-O-W-I-N-G. Wow, that's that's got to be an old domain name. That's yeah, prob- that's... Sounds like it, you got that a long time ago. Yeah, back in the days when you could get words. When you could get words, yeah. And uh, thank you. Thanks very much, Larry. It's been enlightening. Thanks so much for... For uh, the time, guys. Mahalo nui loa and ahui ho. Aloha to you, too. (laughs) (laughs) Watch out for those volcanoes, man. Alrighty. And uh, for those listeners out there, just be watching the skies for STM, coming to a language near you. And uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter 
and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a toy.